Hello and welcome to Handel Hendricks Unlocked, a podcast from Handel Hendricks in London, in partnership with Art Fund. This time on the podcast, we have a conversation from the Hendricks flat with writer, broadcaster and historian, the amazing Emma Dabry. Emma has an incredibly eclectic music taste and we spoke about everything from the early garage scene to Irish folk songs. We also spoke about her latest book, What White People Can Do Next, a brilliant book that definitely deals with some of the most pressing issues we are facing as a society today. And from this, we had some really interesting discussions about Hendrix, including where he would have had to go in London to get his hair styled. So here it is, Handel and Hendrix Unlocked with Emma Dabry. Welcome to the Handel and Hendrix podcast. We're here with Emma Dabry. Hi, Emma. Hi. I think I was watching Newsnight the other day. I think you introduced us to Beery. I'm regularly introduced as Dabiri. I think way more often than I'm introduced as Dabiri. So that's why I appreciate (laughs) attention to detail. Yeah, but that was the incorrect pronunciation. It's Dabiri. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, it's it's actually like often people um, do their research and then they still say Dabiri because everything they check says Dabiri. But they still get it wrong, even though they've researched it. Well, that's what I thought was weird because it was like Newsnight and like you work with the BBC. I like your odd stuff quite a lot. So I was like... I think it's because often when people check it, they still hear Dabiri because right. it's often broadcast as Dabiri. Okay. So, yeah. Cool. But now the record <laughs> has been at good. the record stage. Yes. It's Dabiri. That was a great segment, though, that you did on Newsnight. I oh, enjoyed that. thank you. Yeah, very interesting. I'm glad I, I managed to get it, to get it all all out I was just like oh wow yeah I said everything I wanted to say yeah I always feel like that it was very succinct worth going to watch I think so this isn't your first visit to the museum no it's not it's maybe my eighth eighth (laughs) yeah wow that's great I didn't know that that was was a record oh really yeah have I outed myself as like (laughs) a weirdo why why have you been here eight times so I've come maybe two or three times like with friends just mm. to check out the museum as one does then i've come to a talk here at least one maybe two but i remember one on Jimi hendrix lyrics the mean it's like decoding his lyrics um i can't remember the name of the author but i think the book's for sale here it was really mm. fascinating and then what else i came for another event but i can't remember what it was then I did a podcast here um, for Meet Me at the Museum. Yeah, different things. Oh, uh, yeah. So was that the Art Fund? Yes, One. it yeah. was. Yeah. And then I got my years-long like art pass and then college nice. happened, so I didn't go anywhere. <laughs> Surely they're going to extend it. I would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> so can you tell us a bit about the room that we're currently in, like what you can see and what you think about it? Yeah, so we are in the room that was Jimi Hendrix's bedroom, um, which always feels like really, which always feels really surreal. First of all, I'll just describe the room. So it's very low ceilinged. Um, I don't know. Is this this building is older than Georgian? What what period? It's sort of yeah. Okay, I so think it was seventeen twenty three was okay. like this area was was built up. Yeah. Yeah. So in keeping with that architecture, it's. Well, not necessarily, but yeah, anyway, so it's a small room and the, the ceiling is really low. And I think 
Jimmy being quite tall, I often just think of him like kind of ranging around this yeah. quite contained, quite contained space. But then also it feels like, you know, weirdly intimate, like being in someone's bedroom. But also this bedroom was, I believe, like a place that loads of people would have like piled into and kind of like a party space, which again, it's so little that you just imagine yes. like how, how kind of what the atmosphere must have been like. And then it's like very, in terms of the decor, it's very 1960s, kind of like extravagant and peacock feathers and all sorts of kind of clashing yeah. like patterns and materials. Largely decorated from John Lewis, ah, surprisingly. Interesting. Nowadays, yeah. Just down the road, that's where he got a lot of the furnishings. Oh, it was, it was decorated from John Lewis back then? Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, wow. So, okay, yeah, we've yeah. not moved down there. <laughs> like, okay. No, back then. John Lewis was pretty cool, apparently. But. Really? Was it real, like, kind of swinging, swinging 60s, <laughs> yeah. like, homewares? I actually love John Lewis, but yeah. I think of it as, like, more, slightly more staid, maybe? Slightly more, more conservative? Yes. Perhaps? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. But, yeah, no, that's where he went to get a lot yeah. of furnishings, didn't he? Yeah, so there's like crushed velvet and like different, yeah, d different fabrics and lots of floral, lots of floral patterns, lots of records and some very impressive speakers. Yeah. <laughs> and a little heater as well that um, it, I, can, I can imagine the room being like freezing at the time. And if this was like the sole source of, of heat, I don't know what these heaters are called. When I was a kid, we had one like this without the artificial log fire effect yeah. but just the thing at the back and that was called like a super ser in ireland it probably has a different name a super ser a super ser yeah and um they don't really emit that much heat beyond like directly in front of them so i remember i was like sitting right up next to one yeah. and like getting chill blains in my impoverished <laughs> 1980s <laughs> irish childhood <laughs> but yeah i think a lot of people comment on the fact that it's a small room and that he was like a big big guy so it's interesting you say that I don't know, is it sort of we think of him, I know he was quite tall anyway, but like I think we think of him as such a big personality mm -hmm. as well and it's like such a contained space yeah. um, in here. And the bed looks like dinky. It looks really, yeah. like, really tiny. Yeah. And like you say, you know, it was a real, it was a private space. You know, he called it like the first home that I had, but it was, he made it quite public mm -hmm. because people were in and out of here all the time as well. So... Yeah, it would have been, I think, quite a good sort of party atmosphere. Yeah. And also, it must have been, it must have felt so different for him coming from the States, where everything, I'd imagine even in the 1960s, you know, it's just like so much bigger. Yeah. This is like, you know, really just like yeah. very old and cramped feeling. I would say old and cramped, like it's not nice. Like I'm totally like into it, it is nice, but it yeah. is <laughs> old and cramped <laughs> in the best possible way. Yeah. It would have, I mean, going, like say, going from some, you know, America, big sort of apartment blocks and things like that to a Georgian, like, I mean, it's a real sort of culture shock, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. It's, it's a huge contrast. Yeah, definitely. So I think we can take it then that you're a big Hendrix fan. Yes, I am. Yes. Yeah. I've had kind of like a lifelong, I wouldn't say like, you know, the way this, sometimes I'm reluctant to say like, I'm a huge fan of anything in that, you know, sometimes people that are like super fans have this mm. encyclopedic knowledge of a topic 
I'm not a fan like that, you know, but I have, he's, yeah, one of my favorite, one of my favorite musicians and somebody that I've had a kind of, I would say lifelong relationship with. Um, if I was to, I, I'm not going to go on like mastermind and like nail every <laughs> Jimi yeah. Hendrix related questions that I think you mentioned there was a quiz maybe I know you know I think I might know more than I think just from like kind of years of of absorption but yeah um I would say Jimi Hendrix is actually amongst my earliest memories in that when I was like a really small child I remember um I can't remember the record that it was but I remember this record sleep this record cover that my dad had when I was like a really young child like under four and it had like a it was just Jimi Hendrix face and hair and then there were like kind of these like quite psychedelic traces that's how I remember it and it used to it used to really scare me I was like I don't know I don't know I was like two or three maybe it's the electric ladyland cover I don't know. It's just his face and hair, and that's a bit sort of distorted. Though this is like mm. <laughs> the early eighties. Yeah, no, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I would ask my dad. See, you know what? Maybe I kind of like imagine that. I don't know. It's like a very early memory. And I would ask my dad, and I'm sure he could have uh, provided that information, but he passed away recently. So unfortunately, he won't be able to answer that question for me. So I just take a morbid turn. Um, Yeah, so I just remember having like very early kind of memories of him and just his music being played like in my house from a young age. Um, My mum not really bringing into him as much. It was very much like my dad's thing. And initially, you know, you don't really like, you often don't like the same music as your parents. But then you end up like coming back around to it, I guess, because you just had that exposure from a young age. And I think for my father, my father was like a a huge fan throughout his his life. And I think for him, um, Jimi Hendrix was really, so my dad's Nigerian um, and he's like a, he was like a rocker, which is not that usual a, a thing. You know, he's like really into like different types of like guitar music and like rock music and that kind of marked him out as being like quite different to a lot of his contemporaries. And he was telling me that he went to Reading or Leeds, I don't know, one of those festivals in the 1970s, I think maybe the first year that it ever happened. And he was like, he was like, I was like the only black person (laughs) there. So I don't know, there might've been one or two others, but I I would imagine there weren't, there weren't many. Um, So I think for him, Jimi Hendrix like really um, felt like a kindred spirit, mm-hmm. you know, and the fact that there was like another. So most of the music that my dad liked, I guess the artists were not black or African-American performers because it was like mainly rock and psychedelic types of music. Um, so I guess like Jimi Hendrix maybe had like a special resonance yeah. or um relatability or something. My dad had like a big Afro and stuff as well. Oh, wow. so. <laughs> So was that your only sort of exposure to music when you were younger, or was that was your mum bringing on in some of her tastes yeah. and like what was generally musically going on in your family? Yeah, so both my parents were like hugely into music, but I think maybe my mum's taste was like a bit cooler. Not that Jimi Hendrix isn't cool, but I I think some of the I don't know some kind of of the. I don't know, my dad was into stuff that was more also into kind of like hair metal stuff that my mum would not. No, not hair metal. Let me not. We're going to get some angry metal fans. Let me, <laughs> let me not cast aspersions. <laughs> Just cut this out. But so they had quite different music tastes, but they were both really into music. I think where they met, where they both loved 
Bob Dylan. So that was like common ground right. that they had. But my mum was maybe more into like, my dad liked soul as well. My mum was like really into soul. And then she was also into like a lot of traditional Irish music, but the, so there's different types of trad and the stuff that she was into was more the kind of like folk revival stuff of the like 60s. So groups like the Dubliners, people that mm. like Irish um, musicians that had come over to the UK and actually been really inspired by like Ewan McCall and stuff. And then that had kind of created like Luke Kelly, who was one of the, the singers yeah. in the in the Dubliners. And then that had kind of encouraged, I guess, a reacquaintance with our own folk, with Irish folk music. I think people often don't recognize the influence that someone like Ewan McCall had on like Irish. Um, yeah. Well, he did Dirty Old Town. Yeah, exactly. Originally about Salford, didn't yeah, he? And that's it, sort of. Think of it as like a classic Irish folk song. Yeah, completely. But I, what I find really interesting is that so many of those guys, it was when they were working in the UK that they kind of got involved in that scene and also became quite politicised, like sometimes um, became a lot involved with like kind of the Communist Party and like Marxism and stuff. And then that was also, you know, informing the music. So when I think mm -hmm. of some of the songs that I was singing, like growing <laughs> up that my mum taught me, they're actually like really, they're actually like, pretty radical but they were just things that I was kind of learning all the lyrics of and, and singing from like from a young age so yeah there was lots of music in my in my house uh, so it was like Christy Moore was that someone who so I love Christy Moore now but he wouldn't have been um my parents wouldn't have listened to Christy Moore but I just Christy Moore was very like in the ether like growing up right, you know he yeah. was like a massive um mm -hmm a massive artist in Ireland at the time. And so I just kind of got into Christy more myself. Mm -hmm. That would also be when I was older, probably more, actually more when I moved to England. And I, when I was living in Ireland, I'd be like, stay to Christy more. I'm not listening to that. And I guess it was like when I moved over here and I started, you know, really missing Ireland and stuff. I remember one of my, my, one of my friends, her dad had like the ride on CD and he was like, get, she had just acquired it. And she was just like, Oh my God, like what? She's English. She was like, what what is my dad listening to? Like, what the <laughs> fuck is this? And I was like, oh my god, that's Christy Moore. And I remember I put it on, and I was like, wow. And then like my flatmates who were all English were just like, this is like, <laughs> what, what is are you into? And I, I kind of identified <laughs> that as like a, 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 a my reacquaintance with Christy Moore. And I listen to Christy Moore like really regularly now. Yeah. I listen to him like probably at least once a week. <laughs> it's, it's so interesting what you're saying about how because I think Christy Moore's really like that where. You know, there's these songs that you hear when you're younger and then, you know, you just sort of sing along to them. But then when you actually look at what's being said, they're really sort of, you know, really political and there's real sort of meaning behind them. Yeah. It's really interesting to look yeah, back yeah. when you are older at those things, I think. And I think it's also like moving to the moving to the UK and thinking about some of the songs you just learn that everyone just kind of sang when I was a teenager growing up. And you don't really think like, you don't really think that deeply about the lyrics. And then when you live here and you see the kind of relationship between Britain and Ireland from the perspective of being here, you're like, oh my God, those songs are like militant, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I remember listening like, because my, my, my family are Irish and we were always listening to like Shanna Golden. And it just being like, it's really nice. Like, I was like, oh, it's such a nice tune. And then you listen to the lyrics and it's like, you know, it's about somebody's husband dying fighting the British. And it's like, wow, this is like a really sort of 
yeah, yeah. emotive song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's really interesting to think about. I was listening to, do you know the song um, The Recruiting Sergeant by Dominic Behan? No, I don't know that. It's so good. Um, I listened to that quite a lot. The other day, I was, not the other day, a couple of years ago, I was um, lost all track of time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was just Googling it because I was interested in it. And um, it was like an anti, it was like a song to, it was like an anti-recruitment song mm. to the, like, to like encourage Irish people not to sign up to join the British army, but it was banned in the UK and singing it or like performing it, playing it. Um, there was like, there was like, I can't remember off the top of my head, but there was like a, a prison sentence or a big fine or something. Like it was this really what? like yeah. this song that like couldn't be sung or performed. Yeah. So these things were actually seen as like, I guess quite threatening at the time. Mm. So then how was your progression into like liking your own you know what, what was the first thing you, you listened to or came across where you're like right this is like I like this it's not something that's just my parents yeah I have such like eclectic music taste and I have been into so many different types of music and I guess when I was younger and the boundaries of things are more tightly policed I don't even know if they are so much for young people anymore I get the feeling like genres kind of like you know bleed into each other a bit more now you hear like one song that has like about four different genres in the one song mm -hmm. but when I was a teenager it was still people were really like divided like there were real kind of like youth identities like based on the music that you listened to so the first music I got really into probably of my own accord was like was like hip-hop an R&B when I was like maybe kind of 12 or 13, but there was no ecosystem. There was no scene of that that I was aware right. of, like in Ireland, that was just me on my own. And people were just like, oh, Emma's into like her weird black stuff. <laughs> so that wasn't like a scene, that was just me. And was this in Dublin? This is in Dublin, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember on my locker, I'd have all like, <laughs> like boys to men and like the Fresh Prince and like Jazzy Jeff. This is when I'm like 12, so. <laughs> Give me a break. Um, no, there's no judgment. No judgment here. <laughs> and then my my dad had like moved to the UK by then, but my mom was like kind of into like not into that music, but she was she was grand with it, like you know, um, probably had some level of affection for it. But then when I was about 13, 14, I started getting really into like rave. And at first it was quite um probably chart stuff like the prodigy, like I was massively into the prodigy. And then as I got older and could actually like start going to raves, it mm. became more like techno and different, like techno DJs, like loads of Detroit techno, people like Dave Angel in the UK, Carl Cox, I was massively into, went to see like so many times. And <laughs> it, this is Dublin in the kind of early to mid nineties. I started going out when I was quite young. Often I would pretend that I was going to other things where I'd be like sneaking to raves. Yeah, I don't imagine you can tell your parents you were going to raves. <laughs> yeah, I remember I, like so many times telling my mom I was going to see Michael Collins. Like <laughs> Michael Collins came out and it was on the cinema and it was really, Oh the film. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like a really long film. I couldn't like sneak in a rave and be at Michael Collins, but I would go to like this bar in town called like the zoo bar and say I'd gone to see Michael Collins and I got caught actually I think maybe the fourth time yeah the fourth she time really loves that film seen. wow <laughs> I've never seen it <laughs> um, was I gonna say I got really into like dance music and like probably yeah particularly techno 
And then that was like a really like distinct kind of like subcultural identity. And there was a real division between people that were in, it was like rockers and ravers and like, it sounds so like 1950s, but that's like, yeah. that, was, that was like it. And um, you were a bit kind of like, oh man, dirty rockers, you know, like they've got long hair and like they listened to, like I, there was like a real stigma. <laughs> and then obviously like if you were to ask and like rock, rockers would say things like, they'd write things on like the tech desks in school, like I love E, it kills ravers, like just crap stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> so there was real like kind of tension between the two groups. And I really didn't listen to like guitar music or like rock music or anything like that then at all. That was something I came into probably more in my early 20s. And then I just had this real like kind of reinvention as like a real kind of like indie suit kind of garage rock soon after that like the strokes came out i got like really obsessed with them i got really into that whole kind of scene and kind of like electro clash as well which was different but i guess kind of the same kind of era and yeah that's up to my mid-20s a lot of different phases lots of different (laughs) phases and they were always really distinct like when i was in one i wouldn't listen to like the music from the other and i completely it would completely transformed the way I dressed and the way I did my hair and like my whole appearance would be yeah it was like a whole identity you like in the culture yeah yeah, yeah, whole yeah identity transformation and I guess now I just listen to like whatever I want whenever I want and I just have like a big kind of I guess I just have like a lot I just know lots of music mm. you know from lots of different genres so what was the first gig you went to do you remember on my own steam or like with my parents. Oh yeah, both. The first one I remember going to, I actually went to Bob Marley when I was at the Bob Marley concert when I was wow. really little, but I, I can't, rem- I can't remember cause I was so young, but I ha- I met him as well. Right. So I have this big poster on my wall. That's like the cover of the survivor al- survival album. It's like all the flags oh, of right. Africa. Yeah. And then it's really big. And then he's written on it to Emma, uh, one love, Jack Hyde, <laughs> Bob Marley. Wow. Um, that's oh, at home wow. in Ireland. Though. Yeah. Wow. That's so cool. And my mom said he was like really taken with me. I think we met him at a record store and then like the gig was like later. I don't know why I was at a concert, small child. Anyway, so we, yeah, she said he was really taken with me and he had me like on his shoulders and stuff. And she had to be like, oh. I need my back. But I don't remember. And my mum also is a massive exaggerator. So who knows like how true that is. But I do have the poster. So I yeah. definitely You've got some proof. Yeah, there's some yeah. proof. There's was some that proof. was that in Ireland? No, no. Oh God, no. That was in Atlanta. I lived in right. Atlanta for like four years when I was yeah. little. So that was that was there. And then the first one that I remember probably is Tracy Chapman and U2. I think it was Tracy Chapman like supporting U2 in the RDS. It's probably about eight. And then the first one I went to, like myself, well, my parents bought me because I was too young, but I was, oh my God, we need to get tickets for this, was MC Hammer. (laughs) (laughs) In the point down. What what journey from Bob Marley through (laughs) Chasey Chapman to MC Hammer. You should follow MC Hammer on Twitter. I've just recently discovered him on Twitter and he like, I don't know if he's been studying philosophy or something, but he's dropping some real like, philosophy gems yeah but like from a really interesting perspective that one might not immediately because you didn't really get that from can't touch this i don't think (laughs) much as i loved it you didn't really get that's not really what i was looking for then either (laughs) but yeah so an an interesting guy 
So M- MC Hammer was the first one that you really wanted to go see. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. And then did you get what was the first one you went to like on your own, as in like without your parents? Ooh, you probably with mates or maybe like the Prodigy. Yeah, I went to see the Prodigy when I was like fourteen on New Year's Eve. 15 and 16. I went to see them like three New Year's Eves in a row. Oh, again wow. at the Point Depot in, a, in Dublin. That's so cool. That must have been wild as a 14, 14 year old. It's probably too wild. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. It was Dublin quite, did it have quite a good sort of music scene? Yeah. Like, yeah, I think um, it, had di- it had different music scenes and they were like quite distinct from each other, I guess, with mm. quite distinct identities. Yeah, music was a really big part of like growing up there people were really into music yeah and there were like loads of live music venues and a real kind of like live music culture yeah was that sort of unique in ireland like dublin were there other cities do you Um, know like no i think i think it's just i can only speak like from first-hand experience about dublin but i think music is just like a big part of Irish culture so mm. you might not have like inter- so many international artists like coming to other parts of the country but there definitely be like kind of lots of live music venues and stuff just everywhere yeah we, we were sort of talking beforehand how you don't immediately think of Ireland as like a musically like being like a cultural sort of hot spot mm-hmm. but then when you actually dig down into it like there's so many amazing artists that have come from there yeah and it's sort of I think forgotten a little bit in that sense. So that's interesting because for me, I would really imagine it being like that and would assume the world perceives it as being like that. But maybe yeah. that's just because I'm with, from there. Maybe it it's not like that looking in. With folk music, obviously, mm-hmm. I think people immediately think of that. But I think other things, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that it's sort of thought of in that way. Yeah, that's true. I guess there's been quite a lot of like, saying there's been quite a lot of rock music that's been like internationally successful. But then I'm like, like Thin Lizzy, you too, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> no, there's more than that. Ambrose, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I think there's more. What was I going to say? Another thing that was interesting, actually, was I, like, compared to, like, when I moved over here, if we were having a party when I was, like, a teenager, usually, like, at some, like, having a session, you know, we were just, like, people, there was just decks, you know, and, like, it was just dance music. Usually at some point there'd be often there'd be a point where someone would like get out a bear on and people would like people would sing as well there'd just be kind of a sing-along at some point in a way that I didn't really see ever really happen like with my English friends when I moved when I moved here so just knowing having this kind of like um body of songs that we all knew was something that didn't seem to be as as um apparent here or as present here yeah I can't imagine that ever happening I, I think the sort of equivalent is like a guy getting a guitar out yeah which is, doesn't <laughs> quite no one yeah which <laughs> is never greeted with you know much joy by the other people who are around see i didn't really go to those kind of parties because they would have been like the quote-unquote rocker parties okay right <laughs> i i once like once i like when I was about 15 for a few weeks i had a boyfriend that was like a rocker and he had like long hair and like like wore like combat fatigues and boots and stuff as opposed to like the rave uniform which was very different (laughs) and everybody was real like oh my god like what's going on it was real like (laughs) (laughs) it wasn't a long it wasn't a long lasting relationship (laughs) Uh, so what what would you say is like your favorite 
concert or gig that you've you've been to? Oh wow! Um, Big question. Gosh, now I feel really under pressure. Sorry, I should, <laughs> we should have warned you. That I was going to ask that. <laughs> I can tell you who I've been to see like the most times. Okay. There's two groups, and it's like so. It's so weird because they're they're so, both so different. But the first one I've probably seen them like five times. They're Drew Hill, which you probably won't have heard of. Never. So they were like this um, American, like I guess kind of boy. No, they weren't a boy band. They were like I guess they were a boy band, but they were like this R and B kind of four guys. Loads of kind of like R&B bangers in like the <laughs> late 90s. And I don't, I think they, they were like huge at the time. And they were also like black famous. So they were like famous amongst black people, even in the UK. But they never mm. kind of, in this country, I guess, went beyond being black famous to right. being like kind of mainstream or household names. So I went to see them a lot of times. I was like obsessed with them. And the other band I've seen loads of times, which was in my phase after that is the rapture <laughs> for some reason i've just seen them <laughs> again about nice. five times <laughs> maybe the one rapture gig i went to in dublin i can't remember the name of the venue oh my god i think i mean this sounds random but i did do you know the black lips yeah i've seen them yeah pretty wild yeah so i went to a black lips gig in like the corsica studios there were loads of bands on, but it was, I think they were like the headline. And it was just like, even after all these years, about 15 years ago, that night really stands out. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I find it very hard to say yeah. it was the best. I think yeah. that. <laughs> so were you, were you like, so did you go to America quite a lot when you were younger? And were you bringing sort of stuff back? You know, like were you bringing uh, musicians, like people, people hadn't heard of in Dublin, but were you bringing people back and like, introducing yeah well not so much introducing again it was like that thing of um people didn't really like listen to music outside of their genre so i remember like yeah. going to atlanta so i'd spent the first few i was born in ireland but then we like moved to atlanta and i spent the first few years of my life there and then we back to ireland when i was like four but then i started going back as a teenager in the 90s and crunk was really massive at the time, which is like the precursor to, I guess, like trap, trap. now. Yeah. Oh, okay. And trap has had like global domination and it and exists far beyond the South. But trap was very Southern. So like people in, a, in another part of America probably wouldn't, like let alone people in Europe not listening to it. Yeah. Like people in other parts of America wouldn't listen to it. Like it was very much like Georgia and the South. So there was crunk and then there was like this was a Baltimore like bounce bounce music and like R and B. I really really like loved R and B, but again, it would be quite it would be stuff that you couldn't really listen to here. And mm-hmm. um, this is before music was like di- digitized. So easily available. Yeah. yeah. So I would actually just like you know make recordings like off the radio and then just bring those tapes back to Ireland and then I'd play them for like my friends that were like into techno and they'd just be like what the fuck <laughs> this is crap Emma's off on her like yeah. black shit thing again you know <laughs> so there was quite a um what do you call it uh, a divide yeah. and then I left Ireland soon after that and moved <clears throat> to um moved to London and I guess the main in kind of like black music at the time, there was like an R&B scene, which I was very active in. But then there was also, it was like UK garage and like two-step. 
So I went to loads of those raves, but my heart was never really in it. I was just like, I just don't, I was like, I just don't understand this music. Again, this is like when music was just so like kind of localized and like mm-hmm. context specific, like people yeah. in particular countries or cities like had their own type of music in a way that I think is not so distinct anymore. But I'd never heard like Garage before. And I was just like, or we had Garage in Ireland, something we called Garage, but it was like completely different to right. what like UK Garage was. And it just sounded like mental to me. I think I became like <laughs> acclimatized to it after about, after about two years. But I ended up going to these, all these raves that are the really kind of like iconic Garage raves. Yeah. But I feel a bit like there's so many scenes that like, I would love to have been there and I just wasn't like the right age in the right mm. place at the right time. And then this one that lots of people kind of like idolize. Like <laughs> <laughs> sort of, yeah. <laughs> when I hear Garage now, I do have like nostalgia kind of for those times, but it was never one of my real passions, I guess, the way I've been into, yeah. into other types of music. And I'm then, guessing you still enjoyed it though, when you were there. I'd actually usually just like run off from all my friends into the side room which would just be like an art like more american oh, r&b right. and hip-hop and i'd usually just dance in there nice. <laughs> um and then shortly after that yeah i i um migrated into the world of indie garage rock select clash all that kind of stuff wow so, yeah, yeah a couple of things so it must have been do you think like you were the only person in dublin who was bringing this you know listening to this music that was from the south like trap music that you're saying like crunks like it wasn't trap yet but yeah the, the precursor to yes I, I can emphatically say that i think I was. <laughs> was it crunk did you say yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, I i can't imagine who else would have been yeah bringing it back or, or <laughs> even like cognizant of it certainly no one i i, I met so yeah I think yeah that was so you were starting like a movement in Dublin. Well, no, I didn't like, start a movement because no one else seemed on to your be into it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> seemed to be into it. <laughs> and also talking about how there were these sort of strict scenes mm-hmm. and each locality almost having its own sound. Why do you think that's not the case anymore? Or at the least, I think you do still have some of that, you know, like maybe like drill music and things like mm-hmm. that. But why do you think it's not so much like so so specific anymore yeah yeah i don't i don't want to say um i don't want to be some like old out of touch people or like yeah. kids have no scenes anymore like i know <laughs> i know that there there still are there's there still are but i do think there's been like kind of a um like yeah those boundaries aren't so rigid anymore i think it's got to do with okay so in those times music was like really linked to like fashion as well okay so even like in terms of what you wore you couldn't just go to like a high street store and like buy that look off the rail. You had to kind of know the shops and right, be part yeah. of the scene that was like connected to the music, which is also where you'd often like get the flyers for things and <clears throat> even like buy the music and everything. There was kind of like, an, there were kind of ecosystems that I feel have been, that don't really exist in the same way anymore, I guess, just because of the changes in terms of like the digital world, like social media, like a, a kind mm. of a, somewhat of a homogenization that's happened like sometimes i look at instagram and i see young people and it's actually hard to know if they're in dublin or atlanta or london or sweden i mean some obviously sometimes you can tell but there are are also certain you, you very much can tell but then there's also a crossover that very much didn't exist when i was like a teenager or in my 20s i think what what else is interesting is um 
in terms of Jimi Hendrix, actually, and thinking about like how now there are like increasingly lots of young black people and like black guys who are like really into even like that kind of emo trap scene. There's there's lots of like alternative scenes that have loads of like young black people. Mm. And that was not really the case. Even when I was in my twenties, like when I started listening to more alternative music and more indie music, then my world actually became like really like white again. This is this was outside Ireland. Obviously in Ireland it was really white, but when I moved yeah. to the UK, when I listened to like garage and RB and hip hop, it was like very black. And then when I started listening more to like alternative music and indie music, that sh- the 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 racial makeup of who listened to it shifted completely. Mm. And now I see like loads of young black people that are like into alternative music scenes and stuff and that's been like a huge development that like didn't you can listen to alternative music now and it doesn't mean you, you you're only going to hang around with white people you know yeah um and so i th- also i think of that sometimes in the context of Jimi hendrix as well because i often see him as like a big kind of that just really a- ahead of his time like in many ways and like a precursor to lots of things yeah. that came yeah, yeah. decades generations yeah. afterwards so the racial landscape is different here to the States, of course, because of like different history, because of different histories and different like kind of patterns of, um, well, I guess because of actual racial segregation in the United States. But I don't think that is to say that Britain was just like some sort of like post-racial place where Hendrix could just kind of like endure it i don't know i have i've heard like a lot of black americans in the 50s and 60s you know like moving to paris moving to europe and um because the racial landscape is different having a and there's not that actual like codified segregation Mm. having more freedoms and then they in certain aspects having more freedoms than they might in the states but i think um and maybe initially seeming like, oh, this is like, this is like a, a, a breath of fresh air, you know? But I think um, it is as racist in those places. It just manifests itself in different ways that maybe aren't like as, weren't as immediately apparent yeah. to people. And I've read, I've seen some kind <laughs> of um, newspaper coverage of Jimi Hendrix oh, yeah. and it's race, it's racist, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's in the yeah. UK. It's yeah. really like, um, drawing on like racist tropes and i often feel he was still being you know spoken about in ways that are even though it's quote-unquote celebratory it's actually still quite like fetishizing and like dehumanizing i think he probably you know there was a a tokenistic element to Mm. it as well people often like one black person out of context who's like their black friend but they might not like it as much if there were two or three or four or five you know so there's kind of like a special kind of maybe tokenistic space one can occupy. And I believe, I'm sure you can, will know more about this than me, but um, he was going back to the States more and was making different yeah. types of, was, was trying to, I guess, lean more into mm-hmm. his blackness, yeah. I guess, for want of a better word, word before he died. Yeah. Like when you, yeah. I think mm. you forget like how young he is. Often when I hear his voice, I'm like, it sounds so... Like the actual, like the resonance of his voice sounds so mature and, and, and old even, but he's actually like a really young guy. He's like in yeah. his early twenties. Yeah. 
So I think people are really trying to like work out their identity and especially like, you know, like racially minoritized people who are like black people, like you're, you're often like just working lots of stuff out at that age. But I guess he's kind of what he was doing at that age is kind of frozen in time because mm. he didn't, we don't know what he would have done next. I always imagine he would have been like really innovative, like hip hop producer. Well, yeah. I mean, he loved, <laughs> he loved technology and like using technology and like cutting edge stuff in his, in his sound. So that's not like, I don't think that's too far a stretch. To yeah, think yeah. He could be gone on to do, do stuff like that. I think it's interesting what you say, you know, about him being so young. And I think there was a lot of pressure, out, outside pressure on him to be a black artist and to like be more sort of conscious of that. But he's so young when he starts off. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, it's not an easy thing to do to be the most famous person in the world and start being political as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's quite difficult. And then you also wonder like what his support network was because like mm. by all accounts, his family is quite like, you know, unstable and stuff. So he's kind of just, I guess, rocking up here and I kind of see him as slightly vulnerable. Mm, definitely. Yeah. Do you think he would find it difficult sort of in today's context, even more so sort of not initially being really sort of outspoken and really being a sort of political activist as well as a musician? Would he find it difficult not being? Do you think it would be more difficult today, sort of how I he think went about it? would be almost these? impossible. <laughs> I feel like, so I feel like even if somebody didn't really have, even if somebody did have very shallow politics mm. or didn't care about politics, so not even didn't want to speak about them, but just, just okay, just say, imagine somebody had, okay, just, let me start again. Somebody like didn't <laughs> want to talk about politics because they didn't, they weren't interested or they were scared. I think you'd be less scared to now because it's actually like it's there's there's cultural capital in, in speaking about it now. And I think mm. somebody that so I think that that fear would be maybe removed now. But if it was somebody that was just maybe not interested, I think they would probably be encouraged by their label to 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 take a particular stance yeah. because it, all of this stuff has become really commodified and the expectation is that you have a particular you know kind of viewpoint and that you're very outspoken in that and probably that you identify as an activist so yeah i think i think it's just a completely it's a completely different context you know there's like a celebrification of what is called activism so yeah it's a different it's a different context i think that's super interesting though the Mm -hmm. idea that so his label back in the day probably would have pushed back against him saying anything or or you know any sort of activism whereas now it's it's yeah it's worth something to them for him to do it so completely and um i know in terms of like his own ethnicity he was um partially like of native american descent Um, yeah part cherokee yeah and he wanted to what's didn't he want to use some kind of like symbols of at like drawing on that on that heritage in some of his artwork and he was like encouraged yeah. by the record label to actually use indian symbols instead because that was more like in vogue yeah. if you're going to do it's spirituality so bizarre, yeah. do like indian spirituality because <laughs> yeah. that's what like white english people are yeah. like into at the moment rather than draw on your own yeah. kind of heritage and tradition and that wouldn't happen now like that would be cultural appropriation mm. and the fact that he was partially indigenous would actually be like an intersectional identity that would yes. be quite bankable 
Yeah. No, they definitely, he'd definitely be encouraged to draw on it, so, you know. I think he was quite uncomfortable. It's the Axis Bold, Bold as Love um, cover that, like that you're talking about. Yeah, he, yeah. Yeah, he really didn't like it. And he, he cares. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't really get to choose any of his album no, covers. No, I don't think he liked any of his. No, he, they, they yeah. just went, here's your album, Jimmy. God's sake. <laughs> nice one again, guys. But there is a, we actually have, um, we sell a print that an artist called Nigel Weymouth, who made a lot of posters in the 60s, created of Jimmy sort of expressing his um, Native American heritage. It's, it's a really cool image, but I don't, I don't know that it was, I think it might have been used for a gig, but I don't, I don't know that it was ever sort of used for anything sort of more promotional or anything like that. But yeah, that's the only, only thing I know of where his Native American heritage is sort of, yeah, really yeah. brought to the front. Is it here? Do you have the poster here? Yeah, yeah, we oh, have I'd it downstairs. Like you, yeah, we can have a look at it. So when did you come back to Hendrix then? So you've gone through oh, loads yeah. of things. When are you like looking back at your parents' music and thinking, that's I, not too bad? I came back to him probably around the time I started listening to like um, like bands and like guitar music and um, just became more open to that. So probably in my, in my hmm, probably like around 25. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, cool. We, we wanted to talk to you a little bit about Hendrix's hair. Oh, sure. <laughs> you obviously wrote a book, Don't Touch My Hair, yeah. an amazing book. We both read. Yeah. <laughs> there was we actually a bit about him and his hair in, in one draft of the book, oh, really? but um, the book was way too long. So it was really? one of the things, one of my crazy tangents that just had to be <laughs> snipped out. <laughs> <laughs> you have to send that to us yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. that'd be great I, I don't think it would be anything you don't know it, yeah. it's just about the relationship between him and like bob dylan and <laughs> yeah, yeah it, so yeah can you talk about that yeah so from what i've heard is that bob dylan has been credited with jimmy hendrix wearing his hair in an afro yeah. um and that he the story, as I've heard it, is that um, he was like a big Dylan fan. And because Dylan's hair is Afro-esque. Um, <laughs> yeah, good way of putting it. <laughs> um, that inspired him to, to wear his hair out like that. But I think even if that's true, I feel a bit like, oh, my God, can he not just have his afro does that yeah. have to be credited to like a white guy as it well it was clearly Bob Dylan's idea <laughs> oh, <come You're> no. <laughs> um, but even if he was inspired by Bob Dylan I feel like some of the pictures I've seen okay I actually I wouldn't I would need to like look at some photographs but I feel I've seen pictures of him where his hair is still like relaxed so it's still it's still straightened but he's maybe like picking it out he's maybe picking it out but it's still chemically straightened and then i feel i've seen like later photographs where he's actually not straightening it anymore yeah. and it's just it's just the afro so i'm not sure what the um okay because i really know the specificities like i think a lot of white people yeah. look and be like oh he just has big hair he just has an afro mm. but i think i've seen him with kind of straightened hair so chemically straightened hair that's then maybe put in rollers and combed out when you straighten your hair when you like chemically relax your hair like you can't you can't like unstraighten it so you have to kind of like cut it off or let it all grow out again so I think he was probably initially so I I because I used to do the same thing I'd chemically straighten it but then I'd put curlers in it and make it look like this kind of curly afro but I was 
kind of straightening it before I was doing that. So I right. look quite different to how my hair looks when the straightening process is just taken out of it. So I feel like maybe he had a similar trajectory yeah. with his yeah. hair. We're basically the same person. Yeah. <laughs> but in his band as well, so Noel Redding and Mitch Mitchell, um, they they had their hair. Afro-esque. Yeah. So thank you for <laughs> giving me that word. <laughs> um, yeah, that they 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 did that to like create this look, which yeah. is yeah, it's quite a. I don't I don't know if that happened elsewhere. I don't know at the when, time when I look at like um like Luke Kelly has Afro esque hair as yeah. well, and I know like a lot of like a lot of Irish people like Luke Kelly have like really really curly hair that they can wear. <laughs> like Luke Kelly looks like he has an Afro, yeah. a red Afro. So I have seen it on other. There's, um, do you know well. Dylan Moran? He does a, yeah, he yeah, does yeah. a comedy mm. bit about the phenomenon of Irish hair. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, I think that's what he's <laughs> sort of uh, pointing at. But yeah, I don't know if there was any other bands like doing the sort of opposite. You know, I think in, in your in your book you talk a lot about how uh, people with Jimmy's type of hair would would try and make it look like it was white hair. But I don't know if there was other bands like around the time who were trying to do the opposite and actually make, you know, they were trying to make their hair look like Jimmy's. So yeah, that's true. Quite interesting. But wasn't there a kind of a fashion of kind of like I can think of loads of Irish musicians actually in mm. the sixties, kind of maybe in the seventies, who have I'm just gonna say the word Afro-esque again. I've never used this word before, <laughs> but it just seems the most suitable. <laughs> um so I don't know, maybe it was like a, like I never see any, I never see any white men with that hair yeah. now. Wow. <laughs> mm. Missing a trick. <laughs> <laughs> but in his early career, he had to, I think, I think is it a conch style? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think he's doing that. So when he's playing the backing for Little Richard, um, he gets told off for like not. I don't know. Can you explain what you have to do to your hair? Yeah. So in order to do that. So well, yeah. Those those pictures of him. I guess when he's like on the Chitlin circuit. He's and on stuff, the Chitlin like, circuit. Yeah. Yes. And he's um, the first time I saw those pictures, I was like, oh my god! Like wow, it's just such a uh, dramatically different. It's, it's look. so bizarre, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I feel exactly the same. And he looks quite awkward mm. in some of the pictures. Yeah. I mean, they're just like I'm basing that on like two or three pictures. I'm sure he wasn't walking around constantly like feeling awkward, but I've just projected onto him. Oh, poor Jimmy, he looks quite awkward. He really just wants to let his freak back fly. Um, <laughs> but he, yeah, so conking is is like chemically straightening, relaxing mm. your hair. So that's what I'm saying. I think he was still maybe like conking it, um, but then putting curlers in it and wearing oh, kind of an Afro type style. But it's, it's funny because when I hear the word conk, I only associate that with men with men doing it to their hair of course women straightened their hair as well and are more associated with hair straightening but specifically the word conk i associate with men i'm not sure why that is i i actually need to look into that myself because <laughs> malcolm x talks about it as well that process so um yeah it's just um I don't know if they're using like com- there's commercial straighteners. Uh, also, people have like homemade straighteners as well. By the <laughs> 50s, 60s, there's there's commercial straighteners. But even when I was using straighteners in like the 80s, uh, you could still get products that well, I wasn't using them in the 80s, more in the 90s. Um, you could you could still use products that were like yeah, straightening your hair is really like damaging. There's loads of even apart from the damage it does to your hair, there's lots of like health 
risks associated with it, like yeah. cancers, endocrine disruption, um, fertility issues for women, possibly for men as well. I'm not sure. Um, and yeah, that's what conking is, but I don't know if people are, I don't know if it's, um, kind of homemade straighteners or like commercial straighteners, yeah. but it's a, the process basically where lye is used to like deform the elliptical shape of the hair and make it into kind of a facsimile of European hair. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very painful process or can be. Yeah. Like, cause it burns. <laughs> it's yeah. like it really fucking burns. Yeah. And you have to like, let it burn a little bit, um, to get it like, to get it straight enough. And I'd always have like chemical burns on my head, but then I'd just be like, oh, but like, at least it's like really straight and shiny. And yeah. What's that movement? Swishy. Swishy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yeah, that's what, that's what Jimmy was doing. And he says, that um, look, sorry, just to jump in there, that look is more heavily processed though. Cause I guess when I was doing it, I was just trying to have like kind of like swishy hair, but in that style that you see on like, um, black American men, then they're usually like, you know, like they're quiffing it and they're like, yes, this yeah. it's quite immobile looking, or they'll have like really these like beautiful, shiny waves in their hair. Yeah. You know? So it's like heavily beyond just the method of straightening it. It's like a, a heavily processed look, which mm-hmm. is very different to the, to, to how he, wore his hair later on in his career it's like the yeah. antithesis yeah yeah and i think he definitely didn't like it at the time i don't think he ever because he, he talks about how he had to like straighten his hair and like comb out his mind like it was oh. yeah he really didn't didn't like that and often got called out amongst also like upstaging pretty much everyone that he played with that's the reason why but that was one of the sort of things that went with his uh this character i think that people thought that sort of they would kick him out of bands and things like that fairly regular chilling circuit so yeah it's interesting oh, would, like, because and would his hair be related to that so yeah i definitely i think definitely his hair and he talks a lot about his hair in you know lots of different interviews and like we we're talking about there's lots there's, there's quite a few pictures of him you know styling his hair and he's quite particular about it so yeah, yeah it's definitely something that's interesting uh, interesting to think of i don't think it's really been sort of delved into deeper with Hendrix. Ooh. Yeah. But yeah, I wonder where he was going to get it done. Yeah, interesting. There was um th- there was a really salubrious hair salon in Mayfair called um Atwell's and it was Winifred Atwell and she was actually I think she's the first black woman to have a number one in the UK she'd also been like a singer but it was really like um the kind of music is real twiddly I don't know it's, it's real kind of twee music right. that yeah. I think the queen was like a massive fan of her so okay. maybe you can yeah so anyway it's quite twee music um but she had a hair a, a black hair salon like around here in the 50s maybe in the 60s Oh wow! Maybe he was popping into Atwell's. Yeah, I don't know. Fascinating. But she seems quite. He, I, I would imagine he cut quite a um, a uh, shocking figure in that environment. Yeah, that environment so. seems quite staid and kind of conservative. Yeah, yeah I, th- I think so. And um, maybe the that uh, shop that Atwell's had an influence on other people. Do you think at the time maybe there, there might have been other shops around here? That he could have used. No, there there really aren't. There really weren't many. She opened in Brixton, and then it was so massively successful because oh, really? there were so few that she was able to open one in in um, Mayfair. And then oh, I know wow. there's a hairdresser's called. There was a hairdresser's called Splinters, 
that was where like a lot of, I think that was around here as well, where a lot of black celebrities and anyone that was over from the States, like loads of musicians and stuff would go to Splinters and have their hair done. But I think oh, that cool. is in the seven. I think that's maybe after right, okay. Jimi Hendrix's time. So I don't know. Could you uh, just sort of tell us a bit about your book and yeah, what what it's what it's all about? I can try. <laughs> such a, such uh, an easy thing to do. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it's called what white people can do next. But like, I just as I as I say pretty early on in the book, I feel really uncomfortable attempting to speak to any generic category known as white people mm. i'm kind of like setting it up to disassemble it and I, I think the kind of wide brush stroke way in which we think we can address quote unquote white people or have assumptions or beliefs about quote unquote black people is um is 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 kind of part of the problem and i think that one of the um things the book really tries to do is um introduce and familiarize people with the concept that the racial category white is a relatively re it's not like a biologic it's not like a biologically meaningful or truthful category it's um a socially constructed identity um that was created actually to <clears throat> excuse me i wish i hadn't developed this tickle in my throat after that oh it's worrying you now <laughs> Um, but there was invented in order to um, actually collapse really crucial distinctions and di differences that existed between people who came to be racialized as white in order to basically, con con hang on, there's a simpler way of me saying this. Okay, so I guess if I just go back to when whiteness is first introduced and in invented and then disseminated across the world. It's in um, 1661, 1681, in the English colony of Barbados. And there are kind of two main reasons that this idea of whiteness is introduced and originally. And one is um, to justify central to its kind of construction, whiteness's construction, is this idea of like of, of a superiority. And that is needed in order to justify the enslavement of all of the Africans and the brutal like dehumanization and exploitation of labor of all of the Africans that are being brought into these Caribbean colonies um, and worked kind of to death to um, enrich these English and sometimes Scottish landlords in the colony so if they can kind of create a mythology or a narrative to say oh these people like you know aren't fully human and we're human and we're mm -hmm. virtuous and good and all of this stuff and so what we do is um the right thing to do and they should be subjugated by us whiteness is invented to to create mm -hmm. that kind of mythology but it's also because there are Europeans and specifically Irish people in Barbados who have been, um, I think the word was Barbados. I can't remember what the word is, but they've been sent there by Cromwell and they are there as indentured laborers. And there's a number of uprisings between enslaved Africans 
and indentured Irish mm. that are really threatening to the land owning elite because there's more of those people, you know. So if they're working together, this is like really threatening to their um to to their interests and to their to their business interests. So what whiteness does as well is to the idea of the white race um basically closes off those alliances or those solidarities that are emerging uh, mm-hmm. amongst groups of people whose <clears throat> living conditions are not wholly dissimilar and both of whose labor is exploited by this landlord class and so even the indentured Europeans start to see that they're start to understand themselves as more in alignment with their with the landlords who are also white people. So this is where the notion of whiteness mm-hmm. um, first comes about. And it's in these co- these slave codes in um, Barbados that are brought in after this, after this revolt. And then from Barbados, it moves, I think, to Jamaica. This idea is kind of codified into law. And from there, Virginia. And in Virginia as well, it's really interesting. It's again, after an uprising, Bacon's Rebellion, which is this union of commoners, which is indentured English labourers yeah. and enslaved Africans. Sorry, this ended up being so long. No, oh just oh, Bacon's Rebellion, for some reason, that's bam funny. Like <laughs> but that idea that it was a really useful myth yes. to create, like it had a purpose. Yes, yes, it, yeah. it has a purpose and it, it has like a real origin point as well. And I think if we can identify that origin point, yeah. it, it makes it easier to kind of like think, well, we can... We, we could create something else. And then whiteness is also, you know, it's, it's um, intimately linked to, 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 to capitalism and this new, this new economic system that is also being spread yeah. throughout the world. Um, and in, it's also, it's got, it's linked to so many things. It's linked to the exploitation of the land and a system which has ultimately led us to the environmental imminent collapse that is 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 currently upon us so one of the points i make in the book is that whiteness because of its links to kind of the exploitation of labor and capitalism and the exploitation of like eco- of ecology is it's just a it's a it's a system that's like damaging for everybody not mm. just people who are the not just people who experience racism of course they have a particular experience of whiteness but whiteness is also damaging to even to people racialized as white and that's not something that is ever really you know addressed and i think the privilege narrative doesn't address the ways that whiteness is a is is a, is a damaging concept to everybody not just people who are actually like the victims of racism and i think when we identify the ways in which it's the di- the different ways in which it's damaging to lots of different people, then we can identify like points mm. of solidarity, which would help in building the type of mass movement that would be necessary to really create like sustainable change rather than kind of falling back along fault lines, which were invented to further divide people so that they wouldn't create mass movements. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. That and what, why did you write the book now? A combination of like frustration with a lot of the quote unquote discourse that I, that I see and also curiosity in that I kind of just wanted to explore yeah. some of this history further myself because I find um, that period in history, um, those early English colonies and what happened in them is I think really key to under it's basically 
in understanding that history, we can understand why the Black Lives Matter movement of like 2020 happened. But that context is always missing. So I feel like we're behaving yeah. in ways we don't we don't know why. We don't know the origin story of um where where all of this comes from. And I feel like really frustrated by a lot of um particularly the online discourse that I see around anti-racism. All of these ideas that seem to have their origin origins in the last couple of years, I am kind of more interested in radical movements from the 60s, the 70s and 80s, I think they have, their aims seem a lot more collective and a lot more identifiable. One of my frustrations with now is I'm like, so I, like what, what is the aim? Is the aim representation? Is the aim inclusivity? And if the aim is just inclusivity, the question poses inclusivity in what? Into a system that can't continue to go on in the way it is anyway because of the destruction it wreaks on our environment. So I think we have to think bigger than inclusion. We have to think yeah. about doing things just very differently. <clears throat> I thought that was a really, yeah, really interesting, your discussion about and sort of critique of online activism and, you know, Instagram activism, whatever form it might take. And because you're quite active online <laughs> as well. I just think it's I really <laughs> interesting to like critique that yourself. Yeah, thank thank you. <laughs> yeah, I um think often people don't want to turn the lens on yeah. an environment that they that they're that that they're also in themselves. But I mean, like it it ne- it needs critique. So yeah. <laughs> so yeah, um, it's out next week. I'm interested to see how people respond. To it. <laughs> no, I think also I think with. Don't Touch My Hair, your other book, and with this one as well, like your writing style and how you approach things, it's really, there's lots of sort of contemporary reference points and like contemporary language. And you, you know, you're quite ironic in things at times as well. I think that's a really, do you think that's sort of the best way to approach these subjects? For me personally, it is, but I don't know, I guess like different people obviously have different voices and different, different tones, but I think I kind of come from a background where people take, I feel like growing up, like there were like things that were often quite like um, difficult or maybe even tragic were kind of, um, there's like quite a dark humor that people use to like navigate, to navigate those Mm -hmm. things. So I think I'm kind of like a product of that environment, you know, or that, that, that kind of cultural norm. And I think it's, I think it's quite Irish. And I think like a lot of the discourse is like very, um, is very American. Um, and while most of it comes from America, I, and I think some comes from the UK to Ireland as well. And I just think they're also culturally different that we just should have responses that are more maybe like reflective of the of the context that that we're in like the book is also being published in America and a lot of the theory that I you that I draw on is mm. is American um like I look at people like the the Black Panthers and like Fred Hampton and um <clears throat> oh my mind's gone blank who was the co-founder of the Black Panthers um Huey Newton mm. yeah um and so I'm like deeply yeah I'm fascinated by by yeah. By by all of that stuff, but I guess like I feel like my tone is probably like 
quite Irish. <laughs> I think that's great, though. <laughs> I think people respond to that, you know, that sort of, like you say, dark, darkly humorous sort of tone. Yeah, well, I, I, we'll see. <laughs> I'm sure they'll respond. I just don't know in what way. Uh, <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you something just specifically sort of about museums. Like, what can museums do next? Oh, gosh. <laughs> and, yeah, what what you think about this sector and heritage? I think that that's quite an exciting, like, opportunity and kind of feels ripe with potential. I always like like drawing links i think you can often find links between things that people wouldn't immediately associate with each other and you can often find mm. like quite rich resonances kind of between between the two obviously there's a link in that they lived in the same house and that H- hendrix was um i think like really like happy yeah. that he was in the house that yeah. handel had lived in but um i i think yeah things that don't immediately seem to be um to go together often have like yeah really fascinating relationships that can be that can be unpicked and i feel like so much of this um so much of the history of like race is intimately like connected to england and the english in america and in the americas so there are often like threads that just kind of mm. It's a bit of a vague answer. I'd have to think about it a little bit more, but I think it feels like like there's lots of exciting yeah. kind of potential. And what can museums do? I think in terms of like it really depends on the on the museum. Yeah. Um, but I guess for some of them, that whole like question about I guess like decolonizing museums is something that's just quite key. Although I also think decolonization has become this buzzword that's kind of like untethered from what decolonization actually would look like and mm. and would be that's another thing i talk about in the book just these use of these buzzwords that like maybe once were quite had utility but become kind of untethered from meaning and yeah like just rhetoric that's often not only useless i'm not saying decolonization is useless but i'm just thinking about buzzwords more generally that just become kind of part of part of the problem people kind of performing these scripts i think sometimes mm. But back to decolonization, yeah. So I think that is a process <laughs> that needs to like certainly happen in some museums. But then the whole idea of um, you know, objects being in museums in the way that they are is something that is inherently European, like in in the first place. Like one of the things I talk about in Don't Touch My Hair is the way the past is approached. And imagined like really differently in a lot of like traditional um, indigenous African cultures. I absolutely love museums, but um, they are a, they are European in their yeah. um, in their like rationale and mm-hmm. in, in in the way they make sense of the world and objects in the past. And something being um, essentially European doesn't doesn't by virtue of that like make it bad or problematic but I think it just needs to be acknowledged that it's a particular cultural lens through which you look at the world or you understand the past Mm. I think it's really interesting how um, museums sort of co-opt some history as well for like a European sort of narrative like um, Egyptology is sort of this thing you know Egypt's Greece, Rome, but it's mm. not considered, even though it's in North Africa and you know goes into Asia, it's not part of that, African history. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I always find that really 
Yeah, strange. Why? Why do you think that has happened? I think that's because, of, like, because of racism and, yeah. and 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 colonialism, and because it's um, a civilization that makes sense in terms of what Europeans consider to be civilizations. Because there are other civilizations yeah. that maybe their emphasis isn't on kind of monuments and on scripts, and they have really amazing, innovative things, but they show up in different forms ones that like maybe aren't that don't have value ascribed to them but egypt kind of uh, inarguably exists as a civilization that just makes sense yeah. in terms of um what is perceived as being um as being civilization so i guess there's that yeah. um argument that oh that can't be that can't be part of africa but i find it really interesting like when you look at uh mummies or you look at um obviously race didn't exist in ancient egypt so people didn't have a concept of themselves as white or as black, because we know that was only invented in 1661. Yeah. <laughs> so they far predate race. But if you look at the phenotype of the people, there are people in Egypt that would today be racialized as black. It seems like it's like a racially, okay, before race exists, but it seems like phenotypically it, it's a, a diverse place yeah. in terms of people's appearance. But there's certainly like, I've seen lots of Afrocombs. You only have Afrocombs if you have yeah. Afro hair. <laughs> So yeah. there were people there that would that would be racialized as black today. So this is called Handel or Hendrix. Okay, I know. No, actually, do you know? Let's say I know nothing about Handel, but I know about three things. So maybe <laughs> that's what will come up. <laughs> yeah. No. So it's gonna. It's just a few quotes, a few things that happened, and you just have to say Handel or Hendrix. Oh, I love it. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty simple. I kind of want to whack something as well. Uh, <laughs> Prefer if you did them. Okay, okay. If you feel you I'm almost like a soft hammer. Okay. <laughs> okay, so if you want to know the truth, the best thing to do is to listen to music. Handle. Are you going to tell me at the end? You, you'll get a score at the end. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I can't handle it. Who had a fight as a youth in which they nearly died? I think that was Handle, but I'm going to say Hendrix. Music doesn't lie. I agree it can be misinterpreted, but it doesn't lie. I feel like that's Handle. Why I, yeah, Handle. This is a quote. From... No, can I come back to that one? Yeah. I need to let it percolate. <laughs> yeah, you can come back. Uh, there's no way, this is a, a quote someone has said about the person. Um, there's no way you can compare him. You either have the magic or you don't. Hendrix. Finally. I know you are a devil, but I would have you know that I am Beelzebub, chief of the devils. God. Um, Handel? <laughs> and we'll come back to music doesn't lie. I agree it can be misinterpreted, but it doesn't lie. Hendrix. Three out of five. Which ones were wrong? That was good, though. So if you want to know the truth, the best thing to do is to listen to music is Hendrix. And the duel, well, it was a duel. If you'd said duel. I know, I was trying to make it. I did say hand. Uh, I said I feel like it's handled, but I'm going to say hand. Yeah, I was trying to make it more difficult. Man, I could have got five out of five there. (laughs) So yeah, he had a duel with a a bloke called Johan Matheson, and he almost killed Handel with a sword. Fortunately, it struck uh, a button on Handel's chest. Ah, thank God for the button. Yes. You know, I knew it wasn't Jimi Hendrix because I've read like lots about his childhood and I don't, yeah. I've never come across him always <laughs> being killed in a fight. I wish I had just Sorry. gone with my... No, it's not your fault. It's my, my fault. Three out of five is above half. I feel yeah. disappointed. That's good. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to us. You're welcome. Thanks for coming I'm in. I'm sorry I was so late. That's okay. I, I didn't catch COVID on the way. <laughs> 
Thanks very much for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Hannah and Hendricks in London in partnership with Art Fund. 